just as we come before God's word, let us ask God to open our eyes, our ears, let's pray. Lord, your word is holy, it is true, it stands forever. We stand and sit under it this morning. Open our eyes that we might understand, our ears we might hear, and in our hearts and minds, obedience we might put into practice in the name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen. I'm sure you are aware of Australia Zoo, all of us here at Biwa. And uh, our kids, uh, Beth and Claire, have grown up and throughout the years have gone to that zoo. I think now you can go down and see lions and elephants and all sorts of things if you go down that way. Many years, I used to, I, many years ago, I used to live in the road just down from Australia Zoo, Fraser's Road. And Steve Irwin, this was before they got big, we used to be mowing the lawn. I'd be going to work, I'd wave, how you going, Steve? And how you going? That was great. Then it got very, very big, of course. We know how big it is. And you might see the advertisements, you might see uh, the buses even leaving from Noosa, I hear, uh, or you see them at times. And one of the great advertising messages they are getting out uh, over the last number of years, of course, is that Crocs rule, crocodiles rule. You know, the ancient lizard, powerful and strong with big teeth and big jaws. No doubt, I haven't put my head in his mouth, it's got bad breath. And they, of course, rule in their environment, be that in a lagoon, in a river system. The croc is a predator. The croc will take dogs. If you're up near north and you've got a dog, it might be a wise idea to leave your dog behind. If you're going to go to maybe take your dog with you because they might take the dog before you. They take buffalo. They take mankind and all in sundry if you get too close to the water's edge. Just recently, a couple of weeks ago, I heard a news, a news report from the ABC of a man who was Norfolk Cairns, he was fishing. And as you put value on your $30 lure that gets stuck up a tree, you seek to get it, even if it means crossing a croc-infested stream. And a large croc grabbed this man as he went across the river. Uh, he had a knife and he fought that crocodile off. He had great lacerations on his legs, and I think a friend must have got him to uh, ambulance and they flew him to Cairns Hospital. Now, that's real Crocodile Dundee stuff, isn't it? That's that movie of years and years ago. But what value does a fisherman put on his lure to jump in there? It's quite extraordinary, isn't it, that a fisherman would put such value on a lure? But today, the passage before us in Titus is not looking at Croc's rule, or mad fishermen wrestling their lives for a lure. Rather, it is looking at the grace of God ruling in and through a person's life. Your life, my life, as we place our hands under God. And we would observe from this passage that Paul writes to Titus, who's on Crete, that God's grace matters and that its impact on one's life changes everything. God's grace changes everything in a person's life. The context of this wonderful passage is on the Isle of Crete. We know that the Apostle Paul had left Titus on the Isle of Crete, maybe at the age of 19 or 20, to cement the gospel in this country. 
The Greeks of this island worshipped gods like Zeus, Apollo, Artemis. And Zeus was the most powerful Greek god. And I just paraphrase a reference I researched this week. Zeus was the god of power, weather, sky, law and order, destiny and fate and kingship. He was depicted with a lightning bolt, a royal scepter and an eagle. And Zeus presided over the Greek Olympic pantheon. And the Greek poet Homer proposes heaven to be located at the summit of Mount Olympus. And this would be logical for a weather god such as Zeus to reside because Olympus was the highest mountain in Greece. Well, the early Christians, of course, of Crete, uh, they were brought up in an environment such with Zeus's rule, his power, his power, sorry, his might. And much of the Greek community was still trying to get their act together with the Christian faith. And they obviously had incorporated the idea of Zeus's power, his independence, his might into their life and belief system. And at the time that Paul is writing to Titus, many still had not got over the fact that they were to be distinctive Christians. And they were still showing attributes of Zeus. One biblical commentator declares that Paul gets to report the early Christians were behaving more like Zeus than Jesus. Even worse, some of the ethnic Jews who were in that community were preaching Judaistic practices such as circumcision. If you go back and you look at the earlier chapter 1, I think, of Titus, you see Paul getting furious because... But Jesus is saying, no, you must do something to get right with God. Paul's saying, you can't do anything to get right with God. And this is the heart of this passage we're looking at this morning. It's because it's only what God can do for you to get right with God. Paul is telling Titus to help the people to learn to be distinctive, to cut this whole idea of what we call synchronism of Jewish and Greek thought and only rely on God's grace, the grace that matters, the grace that changes lives. It was a bit like the early Greek Christians were having a bet three ways or like the soldier in the war who grabbed a cross, a Quran and a New Age crystals and yelled, I believe, I believe, I don't know what I believe, but I believe. And the people needed to grow in their knowledge and application of the Christian faith. Just as you and I in a hostile world to the Christian faith. And so we find that Paul is writing this letter to Titus, instructing him to instruct the people to have nothing to do with mixed up ideas from Crete. With his clear instructions to the early Christians given through Titus. Now, we know the first 10 verses that Phil went through, I think, last week of chapter 2, were giving instructions of Titus to instruct each age group and male and female cohort, how they might grow together, how they might submit to one another under Christ and his church. And they were to be distinctive. Their lives were to be moulded by God's grace. God's grace alone, nothing more, nothing less. And that's what verses 10 to 15 that Jeff read for us this morning are all about. God's grace working in and through a believer's life. 
and today in your life and my life. Paul in these five verses says three things I think about God's grace. I listed on the back of that sheet of yours if you want to follow. You'll note firstly that God's grace has appeared to all mankind through the coming of Christ and all who look to him to find salvation. And we see that there in verse 11. I'll come back to that in a minute. God's grace has appeared through all mankind in time and space through Christ. Secondly, we find this passage teaches that God's grace teaches believers to be like their saviour. In other words, encountering grace impacts your life that you now go and do things, not to be right with God, but you do things that are loving like your saviour does. Not that you're perfect, but because of grace working in you, things happen. That's in 12 and 14. We'll look at that in a minute. And the third thing that this passage looks at is God's grace in a believer's life will mean one's focus is looking back at the cross in the first coming. And that's what we're looking at at Christmas, isn't it? As we enter into Christmas season now, And then looking forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus, that what they call in verse 13, the blessed hope. Three things this passage, I think, says about God's grace. It has appeared in Christ. It teaches us to say no to godlessness and yes to godliness. And it says that the Christian's life will be based on looking at the cross back and looking forward at his coming. Well, consider this first point then in verse 11. And we find when it says that God or Jesus has come, he's talking in in a challenge to the myths and legends of Zeus and the false teachers when he declares in their verse, verse 11, he says, For the grace that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The grace that brings salvation has appeared to all men. This grace is not legend. It is real and it can be validated historically. This is a wonderful thing about the Christian gospel. It is history. It is factual. It has happened. It has been documented by first-rate historians. It is reliable. And we find that Paul says this grace has appeared. And, of course, he's talking about Jesus, God incarnate in this gospel. He has been heard, or grace has come through the Lord Jesus. In John chapter 1, 14, you will recall the words about Jesus. Jesus himself is this grace. He was full of grace and truth, John says. Full of grace and truth. So this grace that Paul is talking to Titus or telling him is the Lord Jesus. And of course... This is in contrast to Zeus and all the other gods, the legends of might, of self-determinism, of passion. And finally, we have the Lord Jesus coming, laying down the power of creation in the world, selflessness in serving to the cross, full of grace, full of mercy to you, to me, to the church throughout the ages, to the church in the future. Here we are told that the Lord Jesus has appeared to all mankind. In other words, everyone has the opportunity now to look at God fully. The Lord Jesus, this man of grace, 
Now, Phil, I think, spoke about the diamond last week. And when you look at the diamond, you've got all different angles to be looking at. And Jesus is this diamond. He saves and he alone. I cannot save myself. Zeus cannot save me. Zeus is a legend. But in Christ, Christ alone, Christ alone, there is forgiveness of sin. There is adoption of each of us as God's children. There is friendship with God. The Lord Jesus has done it. He is a complete package. He is the diamond with so many angles of light that you can look at. And for my part in respect to the Lord Jesus who has appeared, I acknowledge my need my desperate need, my frailty. I cannot do life in the end by myself, as I was saying to the kids before. My way, their way, God's way. I need to do it God's way, the gospel way. There is forgiveness, there is adoption, and in the end there is the overthrow of death itself. And I agree with Paul. If you have a Bible, in chapter 3 of Titus 3-7, to or you can do this later, this is what... Paul says, as he spells out what it means to be outside of grace and then transformed by grace. 3, 3 to 7 of Titus says this. Paul says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things he has done, but because of his mercy. He washed us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through the Lord Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. What a wonderful comparison. We were dead to sin. We were foolish. We were disobedient. We were deceived and slayed by all kinds of passions. He comes and delivers us from that. And verse 2, verse 11 is the thesis of the summary that, oh, that Jesus has appeared to all men. And that section 3, 3 to 7 of Titus is the detail of it being worked out in a life. And so we see, so early on in this passage, it's all of God. God's grace is undeserved gift to you, to me. It's new life from God where I give up my rule. I give up my pride where I submit to God's rule over my life. I'm told that grace, and I believe this, grace is only a Christian trait. In Islam, you work hard to please God. You meant to go and do this and this and that. In Judaism, you keep the law to please God. In our society, in our world, it emphasises work to develop an identity. You get prizes at school for doing good. And a number of you here I know are going to prize ceremonies with your grandchildren or your children getting medals or whatever it happens to be. That's good to encourage them. There's no doubt about that. But you're regarded as a failure in our society unless you come up... You're regarded as a failure unless you get a merit award or something like that. And the only 
place that you get an award for coming bottom is in the NRL competition, you awarded the wooden spoon. And even that, you don't want. So we find that this works mentality is not only in Judaism, Islam and other religions, it's right through our whole society. School at merit wards, union, sports, self-merit wards, very different to God's grace where you only qualify as a failure. No one wants to be a failure in this world where we live. No one wants to win the wooden spoon. But that's where we start with God. Brokenness in humility, we cannot do life ourselves. The second point of this passage regarding God's grace is it teaches believers to become like our saviour in terms of character and deeds. Saying no to the ways of Zeus, of power, of might. Saying no to the world's ways and saying yes to Christ's way. As I mentioned in John 1, we know that Jesus came into the world full of grace, full of truth. And now we find, as did the believers in Crete, the problem for a believer is to live this new life in the world of ungodliness, of attitudes, of lust, of greed, of behaviours that uphold the self. And that is where you make it in our world. Christians, as we already have seen in Paul's words to various groups, needed to be counter-cultural in his day, to be above the description, or I'm going to read a description of um, a fawn, uh, of a duck, a barnyard duck, and it describes what it's like for this duck not to fly. And I guess it's like for a person not to truly fly under God's grace. This is the poem. My soul is like a barnyard duck, muddling in the barnyard muck, fat and lazy with useless wings, but sometimes... When the north wind sings and wild ducks fly overhead, it ponders something lost and dead. Then cocks a weary, bewildered eye and makes a feeble attempt to fly. And that's the poem of the barnyard duck that cannot fly. A duck that's quite content with the state that it's in. It's not the duck for you and I to be under Christ. That duck is not flying because it's stuck in the mud. It's preoccupied with living in the barnyard. That duck seemingly doesn't know how to anything better. But we find here in this passage the Christian character of grace, resultant good works shine in leaving the barnyard behind and putting beside sin. Putting beside worldly weights as they drag you down. In Hebrews 12.1 it says, Put the sin and worldly weights that are holding you down. Put it to the side. Say no to the world's way of life. Say yes to Christ. I need you in my life. The whole idea of verse 12, this chapter 2, is to allow grace to work out in your life not to be controlled by the things of the world, but to be controlled by the things of God, leaving the trinkets of the world, leaving the barn and flying. 
My motivation in life now comes from pleasing him. My new master living a life pleasing him and seeking to do good. In verse 12, it says it teaches us to say no, no to ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. It doesn't say we're perfect, but it says our now spirit has come alive with God and we say no to wrong because we know it's wrong or that around us. We say yes because of grace because we know what it does. It's so good. Grace comes first in a person's life and doing good comes second. Not like the Judaism idea that you go and do this and this and this and God might have favour on you and not in that idea that you go and do this in our world and you might get a merit award. No, it's not. We don't do good works to get right with God as some of the Jews were telling these early believers. Our good works now flow because of God's grace working in and through your life. Do you know that this grace that God gives is abundant? It's like uh, a never-ending pitch, lake of pitch or tar in the Caribbean where it is today. And trucks re- uh, reverse up to, it's a volcanic um, sort of area that all this pitch or tar comes up from the earth. These trucks just move in and they just take it out and they put it on their road. And you know what? When they came back, come back, it's still there and it hasn't, there's been no indentation like a quarry. They fill up and they take this tar, they pour it on their roads, just like we can with God's grace. We keep coming back to God. We confess our weakness, our need. We draw on his grace. Not once, not twice. We need it every day. Having God's grace in our lives makes its mark. It makes its mark because it know now that I know that God has forgiven me makes its mark because I know that he's child. It makes its mark because it's God's great work on the cross in and through me. He has done it, a bit like following the north on the compass I was mentioning to the children earlier. And as I showed to the kids, if you put a magnet under that compass, you don't know where you are. You're all over the show. That's a bit like living the world's way. You don't know which way to go in the world. It's all over the place. Here we have Paul telling the, um, through uh, Titus that the people are to say no to the world's way, but to exercise self-control under Christ. No to the fleeting desires of life. Not to live in the barnyard illustration where one never flies, but to fly with grace in your life, as a duck should. You should have the true north needle lined properly with the Lord Jesus in your life. And that's what verse 14 declares, and you fly. Verse 14 says, The Lord Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness and purify for himself a people, and that are his very own, eager to do what is good. I repeat that. He gave himself to redeem us, to buy us back from all wickedness and purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do good. In respect to this, a respected uh, professor of preaching, uh, Haddon Robinson, I refer to from time to time, he says this, So then, 
Get busy with the Lord, task, the task that the Lord has given you of serving, of loving. And only in Christ do we find the fulfilment he longs for each of us uh, to enjoy. And we remember, don't we, the Lord Jesus has come to set us free and to allow us to soar like a bird. And then, of course, we look towards his coming as we see in Titus 2, 11 to 13. And we need to uh, be able to uh, get out of the mud and do fly. We need to fly as we're meant to be. So through salvation, through his uh, grace and grace alone, I am able to overcome wickedness. It purifies me. It cleans up the mess. Now, my wife tells me that often. Clean up the mess. Christ cleans up our mess. Thirdly, the passage points out how we stay aligned with true north or God's grace in the believer's life. I've mentioned that we need to align ourselves with true north. We're told here this is how we do it. And we do this by remaining focused on what has happened in the past. We look at Christmas, we look at Easter, still celebrate the impact in our community, although 90% of people don't know what's going on with it really. But what we have here is that God says, look at the cross and look at his second coming. We use a word called parousia. He is coming back. Now, if you look behind me this morning and I look around, there's the cross. And I continue to look back at the cross in my life as I look forward to his coming. A bit like driving a car. You need to be looking through your rear vision mirror, don't you, to see what is behind, but also focusing on the front. I was noticing when I was driving down to Brisbane yesterday, I had to go down and see Beth at Athletics, I never moved my eyes much down on the dashboard because I was so concentrated. I was just thinking about how I was driving and I was concentrating just looking down 100 metres or whatever it is on either side of the road. And every time I just glanced down at the dash, I realised I'm not focusing as well as I should. But we are to here... We are to focus on the cross behind as we go forward. And what is coming is Christ. He's coming back. As I continue to live in this life of grace, I'm looking forward to his second coming. In the 1940s, Samuel Beckett wrote a play called Waiting for Godet, in which he now is regarded as a classic and there were two men who were standing on a stage, hands in their pockets, and they were staring at each other. All they would do is stand and stare. There was no action. There was no plot. They just stand there waiting for Godet to come. But who is this Godet? Is he a person? Does he represent God? The Christian ethicist Lewis Smead suggested that Godet stands for the pipe dream that a lot of people hang on to as an escape. And as the play ends, those men are still standing on the stage doing nothing, just waiting. And when the 50th anniversary of that play was celebrated, someone asked Beckett, now, can you tell us who Godet is? And he said this, the writer of this place, how should I know? Waiting for Godet is a parable of many people's lives, empty, meaningless, pointless matter of waiting And if there's no God of love, grace or wisdom, then life really is hopeless, waiting for an empty time to pass. But how totally different 
the Christian hope. We're waiting and we're looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great Saviour, Jesus Christ, as stated plainly there in verse 13. That hope sustains us, a hope that is beyond this world. And we find a life of indescribable uh, bearing, uh, blessing. In conclusion, what we have before us is a picture of life lived out under God through his grace. And we see here that God's grace changes everything. God's grace is not passive, it is active. It's God who initiates it. It's a divine breath breathed into you and I as respond. And because of that, there's change that takes place in our lives. We were once dead to sin. Grace comes and now we're alive to him. We were once blind to everything we wouldn't undersee. We wouldn't be able to see. Now we can see. I was blind, but now I can see. And where I could not walk, I can run. And where I could not fly, as I mentioned with the duck, I can now soar. That is grace. It rearranges everything. And it's all of God's work in my life as all I do is I say yes to him. Lord, take my life and let it be consecrated. Lord, to thee, thee. please, Lord. God's grace is like a gentle Persuader. Now, some of you who've used tools will know a gentle persuader is not all that uh, gentle. It's a hammer, and that's a tool that Australians... I love Australians, how we use language to say something that doesn't really mean it's a gentle persuader. A gentle persuader in the building industry is like a hammer or a sledgehammer. You get it out, and it's a gentle persuader, and you hit it hard. But God's grace is not like that. When I say God's grace is a gentle persuader... We find it comes to us, it convicts us, it teaches us that we might become like him through his work of Christ's work on the cross, of his blood was shed and now I am redeemed and I am declared pure and I am his family. So the word for us this morning, sit under God's grace and fly. Let us pray. Lord, as we look through the uh, chapters of the Bible, we see it's all of you, your great work, the creation. You sustain us. You give us breath. You teach us. You mould us. You help us. You encourage us. You forgive us all of grace, all glory to you. We cannot exalt ourselves at all. In our world, people are exalted as we have seen, lifted up, honoured, Lord, in your world, we stand and we bend the knee to Christ the King. We're broken before you, but you enable us and you fill us with your spirit of truth, of grace and mercy. And we fly and we praise you. Amen.